Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Well, hey, the series says with Andy Stanley, but my name is Eric. And uh, really excited to be with you. Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, who uh, originally taught some of this content. He actually was with us via video last week, and uh, today I'm excited to continue the conversation. But that video for me, I said this last week, it's almost haunting. In fact, Josh, who was playing drums today, was like, is that going to turn into a horror movie at the end? Because you can feel the kind of like dark turn creep in at the end. But uh, it's haunting to me, not because of the music or the singing or anything like that, Uh, But I think it can be kind of haunting, and hopefully it kind of gets all of our attention. If you're here in the room today, and you're a follower of Jesus, and you care specifically about the next generation, it's kind of unsettling, because you see this progression happen in front of us that's happening in the lives of so many young people as they go from uh, little kids who receive the B-I-B-L-E, the book for them, right, in Sunday school, and then eventually grow up, and then eventually grow out of their faith. And it's happening time and time and time again. And it's one of the reasons uh, that we're doing this series is just to shed a light on that, to talk about some of the things that are leading people to walk away from faith, maybe even unnecessarily. And maybe for you, if you're here today and watching that video, you're like, actually, Eric, that kind of looks like my faith journey, right? That kind of looks like my life. I grew up in church and I got my children's Bible. And then eventually I got the one with my name on the front. And then eventually I got on with life. And I feel like I grew up and maybe faith didn't grow with me. Well, if that's you today, I'm glad that you're here because what we're going to talk about uh, hopefully meets you right where you are and helps you uh, if you've started to walk away or you've considered walking away from faith. Hopefully it helps you reconsider or at least clearly consider what it is that you're actually walking away from. Uh, But we're in week two of this series and uh, it's called The Bible for Grownups. I thought about calling it The Bible for Normal People, but whenever you say something is for normal people, all the not normal people show up to check it out. So we decided to go a different route. But uh, it's the Bible for grownups. And maybe this series, like as we're talking about how we actually got the Bible, uh, maybe it feels a little technical for you. Maybe it feels a little in the weeds, a little Bible nerdy. We're going to talk about some history along the way. It's definitely a, a little different than how we typically teach around here. But the reason that I wanted us to do this series is because the topic is so so important. It's important in terms of reaching the next generation. It's important in terms of engaging well uh, with our faith in the crazy culture and world that we live in. And uh, we said this last week, actually, as we were wrapping up, that we need to learn in our current moment how to be thoughtful Christians. And that sounds kind of funny maybe to say that we have to like learn how to be thoughtful, but the truth is we've probably all seen and heard and experienced what it's like to be on the other side of a person who's thoughtless or careless in the way that they maybe even say true things, right? The way that, that maybe even they say things that are right, but the way that they say it makes it feel wrong. And, and often many of us, as it relates to our faith, uh, we can fall into being guilty of that too. And the thing about the Bible, the thing about scripture and navigating it is it's not simple, right? Faith can be simple. Faith can be very clear and very simple, but understanding the Bible requires us really diving in to this rich, complicated library of ancient documents that was collected over time for a purpose that we often didn't learn about when we were first handed that children's Bible or that leather-bound whatever. Like, many of us didn't know it. And so what we need to learn to do and what we're trying to do throughout this series is learn how we can engage with the Bible on its own terms for what it is. 
Because what can tend to happen along the way is you and I here, like modern 2022 people, we can bring our modern assumptions to scripture and make it say or imply things that it never was intended to communicate. So rather, we have to learn how do we understand the text for what it is? How do we learn the context surrounding it? And in that way, understand the message that it contains. And it's especially important for us to do that for where we're going today, uh, because we're going to spend some time today talking about the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And Genesis, in so many ways, uh, it's a beautiful document. It reveals so much about God's character, but it's also become at times the focal point in some of the warring over like whether the Bible is true or accurate or what it means. Like we probably have all heard people debate about creationism versus evolution and, and was it a literal seven-day creation or is there some way that we can like make room for scientific facts in the midst of all of that? And we'll touch on that a little bit today. It's not really the purpose of what we're talking about, but I think Genesis can be a prime example of how we often bring modern assumptions to the ancient text when we start to read it. Because we can be tempted to read Genesis almost like it's a textbook, almost like it's a scientific account for what happened. And in fact, this approach to reading scripture has led to all kinds of debates throughout time. One of the most famous debates that happened uh, happened around the start of the 1900s when there was a trial called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Does anybody remember hearing about that in school? If you don't, I'll catch you up. Uh, Basically what happens is there was a teacher who began teaching the concept or the theory of evolution in his school where it was outlawed. And so he ended up causing this legislation, or not legislation, he ended up uh, having legal trouble with that. And uh, the thing became this big spectacle on a national scale uh, for these two different camps within Christianity. There were a group of people called the modernists who essentially said, hey, there's room for that. There's room for things like evolution or different scientific discovery within faith. Faith can kind of wrap itself around that or that fits within the story. And then there was another group known as fundamentalists and they love to put the fun in fundamentalists sometimes. Uh, and what they were saying is like, no, you can't, like there's no room for that. We can't teach evolution. It doesn't make sense. It's not what the text says. And so it's not going to go. And so there's this great debate about it. Uh, there's been like movies and plays and books written about the Scopes Monkey Trial. If you really want to check it out, I'm not going to get into the weeds, but it's a great illustration of us trying to take scientific questions to an ancient text that wasn't written to answer those questions. In fact, there was a scene that happened in this trial where actually the uh, prosecutor was put on the stand as a witness because he was an expert in the Bible. He was actually a pastor and a senator. And Anyway, it's a fascinating story. But he went up there and uh, they started asking him scientific questions like, hey, which rib was taken from Adam's body to make Eve? And they went on and the lawyer was intentionally doing it. He kind of made this spectacle of the Bible because they were asking questions that the Bible was never designed to answer. And the truth is, you and I can tend to do the same thing as we engage with Scripture. So it's really important for us to have an understanding of not only the stories in the Bible, but how we got the Bible and why it was written and the context surrounding each of the different documents that are within it. So that's where we're going today. But before we get there, Andy Stanley, like I said, kicked things off last week, and he was pretty okay uh, as a communicator. Uh, He started off by sharing about how we got the Bible, uh, about the origins of this sacred text that's really central to our faith. And uh, it's a really big deal for us to engage with this because the truth is a lot of us, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're just kind of checking things out, I would say many of us know Bible stories, Maybe you've heard of Noah or you've heard of Jesus in some way or any of the different stories, Moses along the way. Many of us know Bible stories, but very few of us actually know the story of the Bible. 
Very few of us actually know how we got the Bible. And in fact, one of the reasons it can be easy to dismiss the Bible is because maybe people told you Bible stories when you were growing up, but I would guess nobody sat you down and explained to you how you got the Bible. Nobody explained to you the story of the Bible. And part of the reason why nobody explained this to you as a child is because if they did, you would have been bored to tears, right? There's a lot of history. There's a lot of things that might be kind of over your head. And so we just kind of skip over it. Another reason people may not have told you the story of the Bible is it's possible they didn't know it either. Because for generations, we've essentially passed on scripture in this way. We've handed it to kids or we've handed it to to young people. And we say, hey, this is true. You should read it. You should live by it. And that's about it right? Just do what it says. This is from God. It's the word of God and do what it says. But it's a really big deal in our faith and it's a really big deal in this cultural moment for us to go a little beyond that, for us to have a grown-up understanding of the Bible. If we want to reach the next generation and if we want to be honest in our own engagement with our faith. And unfortunately, I think it can be confusing, but the challenge is the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world got the Bible, The way that we got our Bibles, if you're like me, uh, and like Andy, he talked about last week, I got a Bible when I went through a confirmation class at my church, and it was also that imitation red leather, and it did have my name on it in gold foil, and it was this really significant, kind of like passing of a baton moment, where like, hey, here's your Bible, like read it, it's very important. But when I got it, it was all leather bound and chaptered and versed and organized and it had maps in the back and somebody had already compiled it together. But the way that the world got the Bible didn't happen like that. It wasn't just this one book that like dropped out of the heavens and then we all started reading it. But rather, over time, we received this document through the movement of the church. And again, that's what we're talking about throughout this series. And I'd be willing to bet if I went around the room and I like pass out three by five cards at the start of the day, and I just asked like, hey, how did we get the Bible? And asked you to write down your answer. I have a feeling I would get as many answers as there are people in the room right now, right? Because all of us kind of have a, a fuzzy or a different perspective on how we got that. There are some crazy, crazy ideas out there about where the Bible came from. And if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's that much easier to dismiss it. It's that much easier to think it's ridiculous or it's just crazy that people could believe the way that they believe based on a book. And so to get us started, a couple of like clarifying things about the Bible. Uh, one, Jesus didn't write it. In fact, like none of the words that are recorded in Scripture were actually written or penned by Jesus himself. But it's terribly important to understand that Jesus is the reason that we have it. Because as it relates to the Bible, the story of the Bible actually begins when Jesus' tomb was found empty. Because if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if there was no resurrection, there would be no Bible because there would be no Christians. Because when Jesus was crucified, everybody believed he would do what dead people do, that he would stay dead. Everybody would have assumed, and in that moment, they did believe that the movement was over. Jesus' followers all unfollowed him, and it looked like that was going to be it. And had nothing else happened, that would have been it. None of us would really know the story of Jesus. He would have just been another failed Messiah figure from the first century who tried to overthrow the Roman government and was shut down by them. But the reason that men and women decided to document the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus, it's not what he taught. It's not just that he was crucified. It's that Jesus made too many claims about himself that if he had been killed, right, and he was, right, they took his lifeless body off the cross and they buried him. If the story had ended there, then all of this would have ended there. We wouldn't be here talking about the Bible or about Christianity or any of it along the way. But after Jesus was seen alive, the church launched. 
And it's because Jesus was alive and the church movement was starting that people thought, hey, we need to document the life of Jesus. We need to write some of this down. We're all getting older and we need to pass this on to the next generation. And so we talked about this last week that uh, people started to document the life of Jesus. And it's remarkable that we have access to this today. This is a little bit of a sidebar. Uh, But if Jesus hadn't been who he said he was, again, he would be a nobody, that we wouldn't have any of these documents, any of these histories about his life. But because Jesus rose from the dead, his life was documented. And that is where the story of the Bible begins. It was these documents documenting the life of Jesus. And it's remarkable that we have access to these because you may or may not know this. Uh, in the ancient world, a lot of what we know about ancient history, it's actually just kind of reference to ancient texts. So maybe we'll find a letter that refers to a text, and that's kind of what we base a lot of our history on, that something happened. But as it relates to Jesus, we have four accounts of Jesus' life, four compiled accounts of Jesus' life, and that's really unheard of. It's really rare in the ancient world for there to be that much documentation around one figure. But we talked last week that the Gospels, as we know them, these accounts of Jesus' life written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, began to tell the story of Jesus' life. And very quickly, these documents were written down, and they were passed around, and they were shared within the Christian community, within the church. And very quickly, those documents were viewed as valuable, as reliable, eventually as sacred, and as inspired. And people would pass them around the church, and they would travel from village to village. And if one of the apostles or one of the church leaders had a piece of one of those letters, it was an incredible thing as they showed up and they shared the story of Jesus' life. And, and they actually were able to see the words or the account of his life directly. It was an incredible thing. And over time, these words moved from just being valuable and reliable uh, or even sacred and inspired, and eventually they became considered scripture. They became considered this way that people could actually connect with God in a unique way. And so what's important to understand is that as these letters started circulating or these accounts of Jesus' life started circulating, in that moment, there still was no Bible. In fact, there was two to 300 years of the church before there ever was a compiled and bound Bible. But there were these fragments of the accounts of Jesus' life. And Andy taught us last week that some of the early Christians It's amazing the links they went to to preserve these texts for us today. Some of them gave their lives because it became illegal eventually in the Roman Empire to even have a fragment of any of these letters or these accounts of Jesus' life. And and so they risked their lives to protect it. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this week. Essentially what happened is these letters or these accounts of Jesus' life started circulating and the church continued to grow. And eventually a guy named Paul comes onto the scene. And Paul was the primary guy who helped the church spread outside of just the Jewish world, outside of Judea, and into what was known as the Gentile world or the rest of the world. He's the one who went out and he said, hey, we need to invite people outside of the Jewish faith into the Christian faith. And so he went around planting churches, and he's the reason we have a whole bunch of letters, which we'll get to later as we talk about the Bible and where it comes from. Uh, But Paul left Judea, Judea, and he took the message of Jesus to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And what these people had to do as they were learning about Jesus and as they were trying to understand the story is they had the challenge of essentially letting go of everything that they had grown up with, all the traditions, all the faith, everything that they knew about the gods, in their day, they had to let go of that to embrace Jesus and to embrace Christian faith. And one of the biggest transitions for Gentiles who were embracing Christianity that they had to come to grips with was this idea that there is only one God. 
And that sounds kind of crazy to us today, right? Like when we think about great debates about faith in our time, maybe you think about atheists versus theists, right? People who don't believe there is a God versus people who do believe that there is a God. But back in the ancient days, back when Paul was spreading the message about Jesus, it was unimaginable to believe that there was only one God. In fact, throughout uh, the ancient world, throughout the Roman Empire, typically what would happen when Rome would come in and they would conquer an area, people didn't convert from one religion to another. They would just kind of add to the mix new gods. And so if there were barbarians and they had their barbarian gods and Rome came in, then they would just add the Roman gods and they would add Caesar to the mix, but they would continue worshiping their barbarian gods as well. People in those days would have family gods, gods that they had worshipped throughout generations of their family. Some uh, different trades or, or careers would actually have gods associated with different trades. And so all along the way, people didn't really convert from one faith to the next. They just kind of added in more gods to the mix along the way, added new gods to the altar. And that's why, you may not know this, but in the first and second centuries, as the church began to spread, Christians were actually considered atheists. And the reason that they were considered atheists wasn't because they didn't believe in God, but it was because they didn't believe in the gods, right? They didn't believe in multiple gods, specifically the Roman gods and and giving their worship and their affection to Caesar. And so Christians were considered atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. Rather, they added, from a Roman perspective, a new one to the mix. And this new one claimed to be the only one. And that was something that these Gentile believers, people who became wrapped up in the story of Jesus, had to wrestle through and had to figure out. And the way that they chose to do that was when these Gentile Christians, when these people became enamored with a particular Jew. Anybody know who I'm talking about? It's not a trick question. It's Jesus. When they became enamored with Jesus, who was a Jewish man, then they also became enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews. They realized, okay, if Jesus was Jewish and Jesus is capturing us, then we need to look in to the story of the Jewish people. And what does that mean for us? And again, something you may not know because we don't talk about this often, before Jesus, that wasn't the case. Before Jesus, in the ancient world and and specifically in the Roman Empire, there was a tiny, tiny percentage of people who still tried to follow Judaism as best as they could, even in the midst of the empire. Uh, And occasionally, there were cases where somebody would be baptized and go through a ceremony to become a, a Gentile version of a Jewish person, but it was really rare. For the most part, Gentiles or non Jewish people in the ancient world weren't all that interested in Jewish people. They were just kind of this small group in the midst of the empire who were allowed to do their thing, but they were different than everybody else. And uh, for Jewish people, like, uh, they basically kept to themselves because remember all those laws and rules and regulations that they had? They ate different kinds of food than everybody else. And they refused to work on the Sabbath so they wouldn't be out in the marketplace on that day. Uh, they wouldn't allow you to marry their daughters and they wouldn't allow their sons to marry your daughters. Like, they just kind of kept to themselves. And so people really weren't all that interested in Jewish people or Jewish faith in the ancient world, and alongside it, Gentiles weren't all that interested in Jewish scriptures or the Jewish texts. And in fact, we kind of know this if you read through the book of Acts, which uh, captures the spread of the church. Uh, There's an account at one point where the apostle Peter, one of Jesus's closest followers, about 15 years after the resurrection, he runs into a guy named Cornelius, who is a Gentile. He's a non-Jewish person, and he, he's trying to understand Jesus and understand what it's all about. Uh, but in this account, we see a small detail that reveals this tension. Uh, Peter had never been in a Gentile's home before up to that moment. Even 15 years after the resurrection, he was still kind of separate because Jewish people kept separate 
from the rest of the world, and he had probably never invited a Gentile into his home either. And so Gentile people had basically no interest in Jewish religion and basically no interest in the Jewish texts or the Jewish scriptures until they were introduced to the gospel and they were introduced to Jesus and they were introduced to the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and they were confronted by the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter who talked about the resurrection in a compelling way. And then because of that, as they were trying to make sense of this faith, they leaned in and they discovered Jewish sacred text that in that time was known as the law and the prophets. And here's another important thing to know as we're talking about how we get the Bible. This was not the Old Testament yet. Okay, we'll get to that later. But at this point, this was sacred Hebrew Jewish scripture. And these writings, as they jumped into it, became the backstory to these Gentiles' Christian faith. It became the backstory of Jesus and his Jewish faith and, and what that meant. And when they began to explore these texts, to their amazement, they discovered that the Jews, whose religion was older than that of the Romans, that's important, we'll talk about that in a little bit, when, he discover, when they discovered that this old religion had always believed in one God, Yahweh, they were astonished. They, they were blown away and they were trying to make sense of it because, again, they grew up believing that there were multiple gods. But suddenly, there's one God, according to Jesus and his Jewish faith and according to these Jewish texts that they read. And to give you a little bit of history, uh, maybe you remember us talking about this last week. During the first and the second and the third century, Christians began being persecuted by Romans because, as we said last week, Christians refused to worship the gods and they refused to say that Caesar was Lord because they believed that Jesus was Lord. But at the same time, the Jewish people also never worshiped the gods or honored Caesar. And so maybe there's a question that you've never thought to ask before because you don't live in ancient history or anything like that. But like, why would it be that the Roman empires gave the Jewish faith a pass while they persecuted Christian faith? Like, why is it that the Romans allowed the Jews to not practice Roman religion, but they persecuted Christians? Well, the reason is that Rome honored ancient things. Rome honored things that were older. And in the story of the Jewish religion, it's actually older than the story of Romulus and Remus and all of the Roman gods, the story of Rome. The Jewish religion was older than the Pantheon of Greek gods. It was this ancient religion, and because Roman culture valued ancient things, they essentially recognized Jewish scripture and recognized that Jewish religion was older than any of their religions, and so they gave them a pass. They didn't like want them spreading it out, but the Jews didn't want to do that anyway. They kind of kept to themselves. But they were given a pass to exist within the empire. So even though they didn't honor Yahweh as God, even though they thought they were kind of crazy and different, whatever, they honored the fact that Jewish religion was older than their religion. And so they got a pass. And then when these Gentile Christians come along, and for the first time, their scholars and their bishops begin studying these Jewish texts, what they were shocked to discover is that the oldest religion that anybody knew about at that time the Jewish faith had recognized that there was only one God from the very beginning. And the implications of there being one God from the very beginning are staggering. And I'll show you what I mean. Because what it means for them and what it means for us today is that since ancient times, their ancestors and every other single nation that worshipped multiple gods, that every family who was worshipping their ancestors or every culture since ancient times had got it wrong. If Jesus really is who he says he is and if Jesus is... Hebrew scriptures say that there's one God from the very beginning. And they didn't have to like dig very far to encounter this, but the very first line of the very first section 
of the very first book of the Torah would cause the ancient world to rethink everything. Because when they opened up this text, here's what they read. They read, in the beginning, God. And if you're a church person or you haven't heard the story before, right, we've heard this so many times, it kind of just bounces right off of us. Uh, maybe you even argued about this before, you've disputed whether or not it's true, but here's what I want us to get today. Don't miss the original context when people first were writing about this. This was shocking to the ancient world because what they would expect to find is what they would have found in every other non-Jewish sect or, or every non-Jewish creation story. They would expect to find the gods who created everything. But here they find, in the beginning, one God created everything. And how could that possibly be? Like, how could that possibly be? Well, this book was eventually compiled, Genesis. Uh, the Greek word Genesis actually means origin. It was this origin story of where everything came to be. And it's believed that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it's known as the Pentateuch in German, if you really want to know. But uh, in this is a big deal for us because there was this tension that happened, a tension that in some ways maybe still influences your faith today, uh, around the 19th and 20th century, when there was this archaeological discovery that started to create doubt regarding the origins of the Genesis creation account. And essentially what happened is archaeologists discovered some documents from Egyptian and Babylonian and Canaanite creation stories. They found these documents in the Middle East that really closely mirrored the account that's found in Genesis. And so this theory started to be introduced that because these documents were so similar, the initial assumption was that the Hebrews borrowed their creation story from their surrounding culture, that they borrowed their creation story from other ancient creation stories. And it kind of devalued the story itself because it fits one of many and the others aren't true, then why does this story matter? But what you also may not know is that this view has essentially been abandoned at this point. Because the truth is, not only does Genesis not borrow from any other culture's creation myths, but if you read the story and you understand the context surrounding it, Genesis actually stands in startling contrast to every other ancient creation story. The way that God is talked about, the way that people are talked about, is startlingly different than every other ancient culture that existed. And, and you could even say it this way, that Genesis is a worldview in and of itself. That Genesis, it's not like a scientific text that's meant to ask or answer modern scientific questions about how things happen, but rather it's this extraordinary, ahead of its time worldview that documents what God was up to when he created everything and why he created everything. And the modern scientific community actually eventually had to catch up to what's written in the text in Genesis, and they didn't start to do so until 1927 when a Belgian priest actually first suggested a theory known as the Big Bang Theory. It's not just a kind of mediocre comedy show or whatever. It's uh, actually this theory that was introduced, and it was kind of a radical thing at the time because this priest proposed that the universe had a beginning. And that seems obvious to us in our day, right? I mean, all the debates that we have, we start with that assumption. But since the time of Aristotle up to that point, the assumption had actually been that the universe just always existed, that everything just always was. But this theory was introduced in 1927, and then with the discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation in 1964, the view that the universe always existed eventually was abandoned by the scientific community. And all scientists pretty much agree at this point that in a trillion trillionth of a second, that's really fast if you need to know, 
that the universe expanded with this incomprehensible speed from a pebble-sized origin to its astronomical scope, or in the words of Genesis, in the beginning. There's a beginning. Right? They had this extraordinary worldview from the very beginning, and everything that has a beginning has to have a cause. And the great debate of today, the great debate that we keep hearing about, that we're really not going to talk about much today, is whether or not this is a personal or purposeful or intentional cause or whether it's all just kind of random and lucky us that we get to be here. Uh, but I think the significance of this document, the significance of what Moses was up to in documenting or writing the book of Genesis is lost on us because Moses' point that he was making is assumed by us. See, like Moses is building a case in the book of Genesis that's really no longer needed for us because Moses' case succeeded. Moses is building this case because in Genesis, Moses isn't trying to explain how God created the heavens and the earth. He's not getting into the technical details of how it all worked out or the timeline or anything like that, but rather Moses is making the case that God created the heavens and the earth, not the gods, that God created the heavens and the earth. And that's, again, why it opens up and it says, in the beginning, God created. So what Moses is saying to his ancient audience at the time and what the Gentile Christians eventually came and discovered is that Moses is saying, the world wasn't created by Egypt's Amun-Re or by Babylon's Marduk, which the story of Marduk is kind of epic if you want to know. The, the creation story of Marduk is that Marduk, the Babylonian god, uh, rode in on these two horses or in between these two horses named Steadfast, or no, I'm sorry, Slaughterer and Merciless. So my 11-year-old boy self is like, that's amazing. But he rode in on, on these, and according to the myth, Marduk defeated the goddess Tiamat by shooting an arrow that went right into her throat and then he came and he split Tiamat in half. And with one half, he created the heavens. And with the other half, he created the earth. And so Sunday school had to have been really interesting for Babylonian kids, right? Way more interesting than it was for me. Uh, but Genesis, this account, it's nothing like the Egyptian account. It's nothing like the Babylonian or the Canaanite creation myths, where in all of these myths, the gods create everything out of like bodies and fluids and violence and all this grossness, but rather... It brings us to another epic, far ahead of its time conclusion. And to help you see this, I'm actually going to read from you uh, a snippet from the Babylonian sacred text. It's known as the Enuma Elish. Literally, that translates to win on high. That, that this is what the gods did. This is where Babylon came from, and this is why everything exists. And what it states is that after Marduk became the chief of all the Babylonian gods, uh, he went on to create the human race to serve the lazy gods. It, it, it's almost like an afterthought. And here's actually the text from the Elum Enish, I'm sorry, the Enuma Elish, where Marduk says this. He says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage man I will create. And he shall be charged with the service of the gods, that they might be at ease. See, in the Babylonian creation narrative that existed in the ancient world, human beings were an afterthought. Human beings were like tacked on to lighten the load of the gods so that the gods might be at ease. And consequently, in Babylonian culture and in the countless cultures like it that were influenced by this type of thinking, individuals had no rights. They had no hope. They had no intrinsic value because they were savages, just created to serve the lazy gods. And so the violence and the injustices of the gods went on to justify the violence and the rule 
of unjust human rulers. Kings leveraged these stories because they were being like their heavenly fathers in being violent, in putting down others. And so in these cultures, women and children and even men, people, really had no intrinsic value or no significance along the way. And in stark contrast to that is this account we get in Genesis, this concept in Genesis that, to be honest, the human race is still wrestling with living out to this day. But the Bible, Genesis, starts out saying this. And before it was the Bible, I should say. right? The Hebrew scriptures start out saying this, that then God said, let us make mankind in our image. See, in the Jewish texts, humans aren't the afterthought. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. Dignity is established at the very beginning for every man, for every woman, for every child, for every person. Dignity is established at the very start, and we miss this because we just assume that. Sometimes we, like, I don't know, we just, we take it for granted in our world. But in the ancient world, this was unheard of. This idea that everybody has dignity from the very beginning. There was no parallel like it anywhere. And what came next is equally unimaginable. He goes on and he says, In our likeness, God says, let's make them, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. In other words, you don't have to make idols out of these things. You don't have to worship these things. You're not meant to be a slave or a subject to these things, but rather you're made like God. You're made in his likeness with dignity and with freedom and with a purpose to rule. And so the text goes on and says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And only recently has civilization started to catch up to this extraordinary value statement made by the Hebrew culture at the very beginning, talking about the one God, Yahweh, who Jesus served, and eventually who Gentile Christians learned to know as Jesus himself. But only recently have we caught on to this. And and here's what I'm trying to get at today. When we think about Genesis, when we think about these ancient texts, we can miss the point so easily. We can get so wrapped up in our modern questions that we start asking about like timing and sequences and literal seven days or not, or where does evolution fit and what do we do with all that? Don't get me wrong. I think those are important questions to wrestle through. Uh, you, hopefully you know me well enough to know this isn't like turn off your brain and just accept it kind of a message. But what I'm trying to get at here is that the significance of these early statements is Moses was dropping this truth bomb into the ancient world where he's introducing a radically different, unparalleled worldview that eventually went on to become the foundation for what we know as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or which Jesus went on to even expand on further and say, do unto others as I, as Jesus, has done for you. It went on to create this rule that's not reflected in nature or even in human nature because we can be really bad to each other, but it's this radical view that every person has dignity. And according to the Enuma Elish, you were born to be a slave to serve the gods. You're this throwaway thing that's meant to carry their load and make their life easier. And there's no redeemer, and there's no afterlife. According to the perspective of people influenced by the group known as the New Atheists, or people who take like a purely scientific worldview, you're born a slave to your DNA with no free will, really. Again, no redeemer and no afterlife. But according to the Hebrew scriptures, in the beginning, 
we're introduced to a God who saves, who redeems, who delivers, who doesn't give up on us, who, who recognizes dignity in humanity at the very beginning and gives us the freedom to choose and honors our choices along the way. And, and here's what's even crazier. Next, this God goes on to do the most ungodly thing imaginable. He starts to work to reverse the consequences of the bad decisions that the people made against him. Right, right? People, if you don't know the story, people go on and they start to do their own thing. They go their own way and they break trust with God. And God goes to work to reduce or to reverse mankind's decision to disobey him. It's unbelievable. But Genesis 1 provides us with this meta-narrative, this bigger story that captures the ultimate context for all of our experiences in life. That you were made with dignity, inherent dignity. Man, woman, child, whatever. You were made with dignity. And so rather than trying to answer some of these questions like, how did God create the world? I think what Genesis, what this worldview shows us is it answers some of the most important questions of life. Some of the why questions that we have. Questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? Or maybe on a more personal level. Questions like, why are you here? And why does it matter? And what Genesis tells us, what the Hebrew scriptures reveal to us, is that you're here on purpose, and you're here with a purpose. That you're not the result of cosmic conflict between the gods, that you weren't born in violence, you weren't just created by the universe, but God wanted image bearers to carry his name who could know one another and who could know him. And as the story goes on, when the time was right, he actually joined us. He became one of us in the person of Jesus. And I'm getting kind of ahead of myself here because remember, we're talking about the story of the Bible. So really quickly, let's jump back to the first century Gentiles. Remember, they went and they started exploring the Hebrew scriptures for the first time and trying to understand Jesus, this Jewish figure who remarkably had changed things for them and, and grabbed their hearts. And in the opening line of the Hebrew Bible, when they opened it up, they realized that the Jews had it right all along, that there was this one God who created everything, who was worthy of exclusive worship and who gave each person dignity and purpose and meaning along the way. And so this only fueled their interest in the law and the prophets. It only fueled their interest in the Hebrew scriptures. And so they continued to read them and eventually moved to quickly accept and adopt the Jewish texts as their own scriptures. And so now we're starting to get a picture of it. We had these four accounts of Jesus' life and then an account of the beginnings of the church. Then eventually these Gentile Christians came in and they started to adopt the Jewish scriptures as a part of their scriptures as well. And so the stage is set for the inclusion of the Hebrew Bible in the midst of our Christian Bible. But that inclusion wasn't without difficulties. And that's what we're going to talk about next week as we continue to move forward. So let me pray for you and we'll be done. God, I want to pray for my friends today uh, who, man, maybe this feels like drinking from a fire hose of information because we're talking about Babylonian gods and, and the ancient world and Jewish history and, and how this complicated library of documents that we know as the Bible was formed. And, and God, I just pray for them that in the midst of that, they would hear clearly uh, some of the point of today. One, that all of us are made with dignity. All of us are made in your image, and that you're a God who gives us that dignity and worth from the very beginning. And that the truth is our faith is founded first 
on the event of the resurrection and the person of Jesus. And that as we think thoughtfully about the scripture and learn to thoughtfully engage in it, God, may we be people who reflect your heart for the world, conveying dignity to every person that we meet and treating every person with the dignity that you say they ultimately deserve. I pray and ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.